Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. You can join me in your uh, Bibles or it's printed in the bulletin. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or compaction, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the word of God, and it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Good morning. So, uh, in case you looked that up in your Bible, that wasn't the right reference. It was uh, not your fault. You read the right thing that's in the bulletin. It's Philippians 2. Boy, that's a sinking feeling as a, pa- as a preacher. <clears throat> you get up, you think you're preaching on something, and they sh- sounds like they're going to read something else. Oh, goodness. All right. It's all right. That was the right scripture, but it's the next few verses from Philippians 1. There you go. All right. So we're in this vision series, you know, and we're using the book of Philippians to, to guide us. And what we've heard from Todd and Daniel, of course, is that we review our vision at the beginning of every year. And if you've been here as long as I have, which is the whole time, uh, it's a true statement. We review it at the beginning of every year. And our vision here is that we will be a gospel community for the flourishing of the city. And what we're praying for and working for is spiritual renewal, social renewal, and cultural renewal in the city. And when we do that, we're praying for and working for the expansion of the kingdom of God, both in our community here in Greensboro and in the world. So let's review what we've heard so far. God is the ultimate source of kingdom growth. We are to work, but he's going to work out his plan. We have our responsibility, and we do our thing that we're supposed to do, but we have to trust the result. Success can be deceiving. Success is not in the world's terms. Success is defined as proclaiming the gospel. If we grow, good. If we don't, good. If we're proclaiming the gospel, that's how we measure our success. And I remember that sermon well. Todd told us we were a bunch of crackpots leaking out the gospel as we live our lives. I love that, okay? Go around telling you. So if I come and tell you you're a crackpot, it's actually a compliment, okay? You got that? The purpose of God, the purpose for God to grow his kingdom is so that it will glorify Christ. And so our purpose in life, in all of our life, is to glorify Christ. And therefore, we should not despair when we look at the world and when we look at things that are going on around us. And then last week, Todd told us that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and that we will suffer as followers of Jesus. That suffering will look different in different cultures and at different times, but we can expect to suffer. Today, we're going to see that the kingdom of God grows as the church is a community that is characterized by unity and humility. And so what we're going to see today is four realities. We're going to see the character of Christian unity, the character of Christian humility, and kind of see how that all fits in this idea of kingdom growth and in our vision. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that guides us, that uh, informs us, that challenges us, that consoles us. And Lord, as we ponder your word today, let it uh, sink deep into our hearts that we might serve 
you and glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, today's passage begins like the last time I preached with a therefore. All right, seems to always happen when I get up here. Therefore, all right. So last time you remember I had this big thing on the screen, had to go through all this old stuff because Daniel had not covered it all last time, okay? But this time it's easy because Todd did it. And he told us again, just what I said a moment ago, that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and we will suffer as followers of Jesus. So verse one, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the spirit, and if any affection and compassion. Now, as a result of these facts, Paul's going to tell us a few things that are going to call about unity and humility, but let's, let's think about these things. Again, encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, and affection and compassion. So here's the question. Do these conditions exist in our lives, or are they conditional? Is this something that, that if it happens, then this will follow, or is this something that exists, and so something should follow? And the answer kind of depends on this little word, if. All right? He keeps saying if. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if, if, if. And if this if, and if means um, that these are conditional possibilities or even probabilities, that's one thing. But if they mean that there are realities and certainties, then that's another thing. And I'm confident that because this follows the word therefore, these are actually realities. These aren't something that he's hoping you have. These are things that exist because you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. In other words, it's like because of these things or as sure as these things. So these are objective realities. Now, they're objective supernatural realities and they should be found in all of us. But that's not all our experience all the time. Our experience of these will vary in degree, and they're going to vary depending on the times in our lives, and we're going to, they're going to vary in, in all kinds of different situations, but they should be realities in all believers. So let's look at them a little more in detail. Encouragement in Christ. Encourage here could mean several things. It could mean as, it could be an exhortation. You should be courageous in Christ. You know, you should be. Go and do things. You should go out and do everything, then this exhortation, if that's what Paul meant, would have authority and power because he says you should be encouraged in Christ. Encourage could also mean request. A little softer than exhort, but still an urging to do something. But encouragement also means comfort. It's not the common way we use the term, but I think in this context, that's actually what it means because he's told us that we're going to suffer and, and with the rest of the verse that's going to follow, the best sense of this word encourage here is to comfort. There is comfort. There is encouragement in being in Christ. It's, it's comforting to be a branch that's grafted into the vine and it's comforting to be in the Son as he is even now before the Father interceding on our behalf. Consolation of love. Well, the word consolation here, in many translations, is actually translated comfort. But it implies a verbal comforting. Somebody's speaking comfort to you. Well, in Paul's life, that comfort would have come from the calming words and work of the Holy Spirit in his life, and from the words of love from other believers. For us, we get to add the words of Scripture to the work of the Holy Spirit and the words of loves of others. So now again, we are encouraged and comforted in Christ. We are consoled and comforted by Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, and by other believers. And we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I'm going to be honest. I've read this passage dozens of times in my life, and I have never actually thought about what that means. Just never really paused and thought, what does that mean? All right, the word fellowship here is the word koinonia. And for those of you who are as old as I am, uh, koinonia was a common term back in the 60s and uh, 70s. And it talked about, I thought it had to do with the fellowship of believers, that, that it was koinonia among the believers, and it is. But here's the koinonia of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means a participatory fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We all who are of Jesus possess and participate in the Holy Spirit. And one commentator noted that in Paul's day, this word, actually, this word would have actually been sometimes used in business. And it would have meant a common possession and participation in something that often resulted from an inheritance. So the idea here is that each of us doesn't own a little piece of the Holy Spirit. It's that we all participate in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's a little bit like the difference between a place at the beach where you have a timeshare and you own a couple of weeks versus where you share it with a few families. You own the whole thing with all of them, right? And that's how it is with the Holy Spirit. We actually share that within us. So that means when we say the Holy Spirit lives in each of us, it's the entire fullness of the Holy Spirit that is within each of us, not just part. And just as there's comfort in being in Christ, comfort in loving one another so there's comfort in the knowledge and reality that the holy spirit fully lives within each one of us and this this should really change how we view each other as we come in as we come in each week that fellow believer you meet and sit next to has the fullness of the holy spirit within them why don't you pause and think about that the next time you say hello might change what you think might change what you say might change what you offer to do and then affection and compassion now, the word here for affection is really interesting. It's the word splanknon. There you go. For those of you who are uh, of the medical profession, you'll recognize that there is an artery in the body called the splanknic artery. I spent years practicing that word. Um, it means guts or intestines. All right. To the Greeks, the seat of emotion was not the heart. It was the gut which is probably a better metaphor if you want to think about it, because that's where, okay? So that's, th this is really strong emotion, okay? Now, Paul's already used this word in the first part of Philippians. He says, for God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's a little odd to contemplate how I long for you with all the guts of Jesus Christ. But to a Greek, that would have resonated. That would have been, yeah, I get it. That's intense. That's intense emotionality. That's an intense emotional connection. And, you know, our word affection kind of means, yeah, I kind of like it, you know, kind of. I mean, it can mean something intense, but typically the way we use the word intense is that we're fond of something or we like it. But this is much stronger than that. So affection and compassion. What does compassion mean? It means compassion, okay? What's well, easy? It's showing concern over another's misfortune. So Paul is telling us, remember from the end of chapter 1, that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and through or perhaps because of suffering together as believers, then we are encouraged and comforted because we are in Christ. We are comforted by the love of God and others. We are comforted by the presence and sharing of the Holy Spirit between us. And we are comforted by this intense relationship and compassion that exists between believers. 
This complete and total comforting comes both from and also helps us to endure the suffering. And I have to say this is a, an incredible vision of comfort and consolation. And I think that Paul is telling us that these are realities in our lives, but what if they're not your experience? What if, they, what if you're not experiencing these conditions or all of them? What, what do we do about that? Well, I think you can take this as an opportunity if you feel like you're not embracing those conditions or those realities to look at yourself in your relationship with God. If you're a believer and you're not experiencing this encouraging comfort of Christ or if you're not experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit, then I would recommend examining yourself. In a word, do you feel apart from God? And as the old saying goes, if you feel apart from God, who moved? Not usually God. That separation you are experiencing could be unrepentant sin. And if so, examine yourself, confess it, repent, and you will see that God is waiting to welcome you back into his comfort. But alternatively, and I think probably more commonly, that separation that we experience is just the distractions and busyness of life. It keeps us from daily devotions, from being with other believers, from coming regularly to worship. If you examine yourself and see that, then God is waiting to welcome you back into his comfort. And if you're here today and you're not a believer and you have no earthly idea what I'm talking about, then it would not surprise you that you are not, it would not surprise me that you're not experiencing God's comfort, but he might be calling you even today to come and yield to him and wait and as he waits to welcome you into his comfort. Now these four realities, Paul tells us, come because we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And what follows is unity and humility. Verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. On this background of these four realities, which exist in the Philippians, existed in the Philippians and exist in us, Paul calls for unity. Unity in thinking, in love, and in purpose. We are to be of the same mind. The word here means to think thus. We are all to think thus. Uh, actually, Paul, this is a very common word in the book of Philippians. He uses it ten times in this uh, letter. And it really, in this range of meanings, all seem to have the overall thrust of seek the same goal with a like mind. We'll come back to that in a minute. We are to maintain the same love. The word here is agape, that sacrificial love for one another and the other's welfare, welfare uniquely called for in the lives of believers and only available to those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we are to be united in spirit. In the phrase united in spirit is one word in the Greek, okay? One-souled, what a great word. We are to be one-souled. That's awesome. It's people living in harmony, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Aristotle called this idea of being united in spirit or one-souled a unanimity of friendship. And we are to be intent on one purpose. Here Paul repeats a, a form of the word, think thus, that he started the verse. What Paul is calling for is this profound unity in thinking, in love, and in purpose that is a result of these four realities that we talked about earlier. Now you might be concerned. Are we supposed to just be thinking the same thing all the time? Are we automatons? Is this just a big place where we all go ditto, ditto? 
Is that what we're being called for? Well, of course not. Paul's never saying that one can never express disagreement. This is not squelching critical thinking. It's not, it's not getting rid of creativity. It's not moaning or demeaning differences in the people of God. This is about seeking the same goal with a like mind. It's about overcoming those divisions and those differences by pulling and in order to pull in the same direction. Now let me be very clear. There are some things that we do have to agree on. There are some things that we have to think thus. All right? To be a believer and a follower of Jesus, there are some things you've got to believe. Those are non-negotiable. Okay? And when you join a church, you often are agreeing to agree on things that may be beyond the non-negotiables. That's why we have denominations. But we don't have to agree on everything in order to be unified on one goal. And that goal for us in this day in our city is the growth of the kingdom of God and the flourishing of the city. And that is the character of Christian unity. It's not monolithic. It's not without distinction and differences. It's not without creativity and diversity. That, but it's one goal unified by one spirit. The best metaphor I can come up, here, come up with here is actually a musical one. Um, for those of you who've been around a long, a long time, you know occasionally I play bassoon. So, so my background in music is uh, orchestral and chamber music kind of stuff. All right? Now, um, everybody in, in the, all the groups that I've ever been in, we tune to an A. All right? Well, that sounds easy. Except, which A is it? All right? In the United States, A is 440, 440 hertz. Uh, in your, in, oh well, actually that's not always true. Uh, there's a couple of famous orchestras that don't turn, tune to that A, they tune to another A. Um, and in Europe, you, turn, you tune usually to 442, all right? So the, the orchestra, the music has to agree on this one note, what is an A, all right? So that's the first thing they have to do. And let me tell you, if you're playing in an orchestra thinking A is 440 and everybody else thinks A is 442, it sounds really, really bad. Okay? It's not good. Now, do, do, and so, so notice then this, this pitch of, of A is a non-negotiable for that mu musical ensemble. You can't negotiate on that. All right, now, now, does everybody play the same instrument? No, of course not. They all play different instruments, okay? And, and there's this great diversity of sounds, and the, the awesome thing about sound is you can actually tell the difference between a violin and a cello and a flute and a clarinet, even if they're playing the same note. It's just kind of amazing, isn't it? All right? And do they play the same note? No, of course not. That would be boring. Imagine the band gets up here and all play the same chord the whole time. You know? That would be bad. It would be horrible, actually. All right? But they do, but the one thing they do do, they don't play the same note, they play the same piece. Right? If one part of the orchestra says, well, we're going for Beethoven's ninth, and the next one says, now nah, we're doing Brandenburg and Shedder number one, you got a problem. All right? We got to have the same goal. All right? And then finally, they have to trust each other. They have to trust that they're each going to do their best. As Wendy so apt pointed out, we don't always do that. And it's okay. But we all have to trust. They, they all in the orchestra have to trust that they're all going to do their best. And so think about that as a metaphor for what we're trying to do here. All right? 
The non-negotiables of the faith is the A440, or 442, whichever one we want to pick. We just got to pick one, all right? The different instruments are the different people that you see sitting around you. Characteristics, personalities, areas of expertise. The piece of music is our goal, which is the flourishing of the city. And just, when an or just as when an orchestra captivates us by their wonderful harmony, so we can be captivated when we gather for worship on Sunday morning, when we get together in community group, in women's groups, in men's groups, in youth groups, when we look around and experience the different people that God has called together here, and as we find comfort and unity as we live our lives as the citizens of God. That's what Paul is calling for here. It's a beautiful picture. And then he moves on to talk about humility. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, he starts in verse 3, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The first part of verse 3 then implores us to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. The idea here is selfish ambition. It's about having to always be right, to always get ahead, to always be first. And the second idea is this idea of excessive vanity, self-absorption, self-regard, self-glory. It's all about me and my needs and my fulfillment. Paul warns us that nothing we do should be guided by these self-serving principles. Instead, he says we should be guided by humility. Now, you might be thinking, of course he does. Isn't that what Jesus always taught? I mean, this isn't hard to think about. Isn't that what Jesus lived? But you need to understand how revolutionary this was in the Greco-Roman world. Humility was not something to be admired in that world at all. Humility was a sign of weakness, cowardness, lowliness, lack of freedom, subjugation, slavery. It was horrible. It would have been something that Paul's readers would have had to embrace that was utterly countercultural to the world in which they lived. What about today? How do we regard humility in our culture today? Well, I think it's kind of a mixed bag. I think you kind of get mixed signals here. I really have thought in, in the time period several generations ago in which I grew up, <laughs> seems to be getting longer and longer ago all the time, um, that we really kind of honored humility. We thought it was kind of good. But these days, it's kind of changing that. You know, when somebody starts saying, well, you know, it's all about me, I make my own truth, and uh, you can't tell me what to think or how to live, that doesn't sound terribly humble to me. Tim Keller quotes a commentator on the trends in culture who says that humility came under attack, self-effacement became identified with conformity and self-repression. I, I mean, I, I know I'm not a counselor. I, can you repress yourself? I, I don't I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, you know, somebody can correct me later. I'm sorry, I just I have a little... Uh, um, I've heard of, you know, never mind. Okay, a different ethos comes to the fore, which the sociologists call expressive individualism. Instead of being humble before God in history, moral salvation can be found through intimate contact with self and by exposing the beauty, the power, and the divinity within. So maybe humility is taking a back seat again. Maybe it's being looked at as a sign of weakness or subjugation. But... Yesterday, I happened to catch an article on ESPN, and it was about an NBA player being booed because he wanted to be traded. 
In an interview recently, he had indicated that he thinks he is not being rewarded enough and recognized enough. And you know the truth? He might be right. He's a fabulous basketball player. He wants to go elsewhere where he thinks he can get paid more and be more recognized as a great player that he thinks he is. And he probably is. It's not that he's wrong about his self-appraisal. But the next time he took the floor, he got booed. Right? Was he booed because he lacked humility? Or because they were just angry that he wanted to leave? I don't know. But at least some of it is probably this lack of humility. So I'm a little, I don't know where we are on humility in our culture. But regardless of where the culture is today, we are to display humility. And you know, I think deep in our hearts, most of us still kind of regard this as something to be valued. And Paul is great here because he tells us the way to practice humility. And that's to regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now this word regard means think about. You're just to think about others more, to consider them, to reckon them, and to reckon them as more important, as having more value than you. So we are to value others more than ourselves. But it doesn't say that you're not supposed to value yourself. It's a common error we make. This doesn't mean we beat ourselves up and put ourselves down. That's false humility. What we do here is not negative, putting ourselves down. It's positive. It's putting others up. And so the way to practice humility is to value others more than ourselves. And how do we do that, you might ask? Well, Paul has the answer in verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Our task as believers is to first pay attention to the interests of others, to their needs. In Galatians 6, Paul describes this as the foundation of Christian ethics. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, he tells us in Galatians. But this is not to be done without attention to your own needs. You cannot meet others' needs fully if you completely ignore your own. Frankly, if you do, you're being just as selfish as somebody who doesn't meet others' needs. You're just as vain as they are. You're doing that for your own glory. And let me tell you, as a physician, I've seen this happen over and over again in my life. Over the years, and I've, ta- I've shared some of these stories over the, years I've, over the years that I've practiced, I've seen many patients who are adult children of elderly patients or elderly parents um, and, they, and in the process of caring for their elderly parents, they were not taking care of themselves. They were carrying enormous burdens and sharing it with no one. I mean, I'm, I think I've told you all this story in the past, but this one woman who goes to an outstanding church in this community would not tell the other people in the church of her burden. And she was miserable. It was horrible. Why don't you tell your church? Oh, I can't tell them. Who can you tell? Oh my goodness. It, this, it makes them feel good. I'm, I'm doing my part. I'm, you know, I'm a strong, heroic person. But it's killing them. And I've seen it lead to depression, insomnia, alcohol abuse. One has to ask, what good is a caregiver in that state? You see, we are to look out for the interests and needs of others. We're to bear their burden. Yes, but we do that while we're also looking out after our own interests and needs. Not instead of looking out after our own interests and needs. How does that look for you? I don't know. You get to figure that out. How does that look for us as a corporate community? We look after each other's needs while we're looking after our own. 
That's what it looks like. I don't know the specifics. That's what we got to work out. This is the character of Christian humility. Looking after the needs of others while you, in fact, look after your own needs. So we've covered a lot of territory today in these four short verses, so let's give a a final big overview. We started by looking at four objective realities that should be in our lives as believers. We are encouraged in Christ. We are consoled by love. We share in the fellowship of the Spirit. We care deeply about one another, and we're compassionate. We granted that because we're all broken people who are growing to be more like Jesus, that our experience of these realities will vary from person to person and from time to time in our lives. That shouldn't surprise us. That's okay. It doesn't make them any less real. And the result of these four realities will be a group of people with a unity of belief that celebrates differences and employs those very differences to work in harmony toward one goal. And a group of people with a humility that comes from looking out for the interest of others before, but not instead of looking after their own. I just want you to stop for a moment and ponder the balance and the harmony and the beauty of this. This is how we are at Hope Chapel when we're at our best. We're not always at our best. That's okay. But this is how we are at Hope Chapel when we're at our best. And this is what people, I believe, find most wonderful in this community of believers. So as we live out unity and humility, the kingdom of God will grow. Amen.